Hi, I'm Pat Kelly. And I'm Peter Oldring, and we're the hosts of This Is That. Are you kidding? For over a decade, we were radio's go-to source for completely fabricated news. You must be joking me. And now, we're back in podcast form. We've selected some of our favorite stories from over the years and put them in one convenient location. Sugar in the tap water. Bilingual dog park. Charging to see wildlife. This Is That, coming soon on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It's not every day you look at the director of Pinocchio and you say, so can kids watch this? But that's a fair question for Guillermo del Toro, who won the Oscar for his version of Pinocchio just the other week. He'll tell you why Pinocchio, he thinks, is a darker, more grown-up story and why he chose to include fascism in his version. That's coming up. Plus, the musician Jeremy Dutcher has spent most of his career talking about language, specifically about his family's language, Wallistigwe, a language that was in danger of going extinct. But now Jeremy and his mother have teamed up to start a school to make sure the language is not just preserved, but spoken. And they'll be here to tell you all about that. I'm Tom Power. You were listening to Q. So, uh, yeah, Guillermo del Toro won the Oscar a few weeks ago for Best Animated Feature for his version of uh, Pinocchio that's out now on Netflix. Let's listen to a little bit of his acceptance speech. Animation is cinema. Animation is not a genre. And uh, animation is ready to be taken to the next step. Thank you. I mean, you can tell the passion that Guillermo del Toro has for film, not just as like an entertaining medium, but as a way to make us think differently about the world around us. You might know Guillermo del Toro from his Oscar-winning films like Pan's Labyrinth or The Shape of Water. A few years ago, Guillermo came into the studio and, and we talked to him. I mean, this is before the conversation you're about to hear. And one of the things we found ourselves talking about a lot was Frankenstein, which was a really big influence on him as a kid, because he realized early on that Frankenstein's monster is not the monster. The monster is us. The monster is society and the way we treated Frankenstein's monster. And that leads to, I think, Pinocchio. Pinocchio, you know, the story, it's a wooden puppet who gains sentience, like some kind of terrifying AI. And his nose grows every time he tells a lie and he wants to become a real boy. That's the story, right? But Guillermo uses the story to talk broadly about society's acceptance of authority. At one point in this conversation, he talks about Pinocchio as sort of a Christ-like figure, So Pinocchio is out on Netflix now. Jury's out whether you should let the kids watch it by themselves. Here's my conversation with Guillermo del Toro. How are you? Very good, man. Congratulations on this. Thank you. It's great. It's a a whole team thanks you. Producers, animators, two directors, Margo Stephan and I, we all thank you, man. Well, you're welcome. Uh, Tell them all you're welcome. You are all welcome. (laughs) You hear? No, it was such a, I mean, this is like building the pyramids. You have hundreds of people carrying stones for years, years. A thousand days of shoot. Yeah, a thousand days. A thousand days of shoot. Why Pinocchio? What did Pinocchio mean to you growing up? It was either the second or the third film I saw with my mother, and it was the first time in that long cinephile life of (laughs) seven-year-old Guillermo where I felt uh, somebody understood how dark it felt to be a child. Father, what you crying for? Because you're dead, Pinocchio. 
And I was like, yeah, this is not a happy cartoon on TV. This is this, somebody gets it. And, and I still have this feeling with Disney. You know, I think Disney had a huge reservoir of darkness to command the light also, you know. And I think narratively his films are full of uh, disingenuity and this pain. Uh, so I, I felt it all. It was the first Disney movie I saw, and it hit me really the hardest. There is something about that. Like, I remember being a kid and my dad taking me to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Oh, yeah. And leaving because I was too scared. Yes. The yes. idea of that happening to a kid's cartoon. I, 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 we were with Quentin Tarantino about four weeks ago, and he said, in all seriousness, he said, uh, the scariest, goriest movie, most violent movie I ever saw was Bambi. Yeah. That I had to leave the theater. I was so scared. So terrified, and and it's the first time you say, "You mean my mom can die?" Yeah, and my dad is gonna be this shadowy figure saying, "Come with me, son." I go, it's like, it's like mythical. Mother, <laughs> your mother can't be with you anymore. Come, my son. And, and I think uh, that proportion of Disney, people, when people say Disney-fied, uh, I go, yeah, pray tell me more because this or that uh, don't correspond to the idea I have of Disney. So it's, it's such a dark um, experience you have watching this film uh, when you're a kid. But then, so then what? Like you, you, you... Then I identify with Pinocchio very much. As you I, did? Yeah, I did, as I did with Frankenstein's creature. Because I feel that they are both about a father just giving birth to a son, sort of in a haphazard manner, and sending the kid into what is an experiential, almost initiatic journey through life to figure it out without any real assistance. And I felt like that as a kid. I felt like... Uh, the the truths and lies that the adults were praying uh, that I understood were all really hollow. And life was telling me a bunch of things that were different. So I love that aspect of it. And they are related in a way. You know, they are both creatures that don't quite belong in the natural world. And I felt like that as a kid. And uh, I had a really sense of otherness. Like I didn't conform to the idea that people had of a young boy, healthy, playing football. I was like this rail thin, can you imagine that? Rail thin, pale, quiet kid that buttoned all his buttons in the shirt, that never spoke, looked around, really spooked, you know? So I identified with that. I didn't like at all. It, it stuck in my crow, the idea of obedience, and being something you're not in order to be accepted. So those two things are completely counter in, in our Pinocchio. There's another, there's another connection between Frankenstein and your Pinocchio that I want to get to in just a second that, that I think we found. But first, I think it's helpful to set up for people who haven't seen it, that it's, yeah. it's set up. This is all, this whole, your Pinocchio yeah. happens during... Uh, between World War One and World War Two. So the rise of fascism yes. and, and Mussolini. Which all happens, by the way, on the periphery or off screen. Yeah. And this is very important because I did the same in Devil's Backbone. I refuse, if I can avoid it, I refuse to have a, a proper war scene because then that upends the entire balance. Yeah. I need to keep it sort of off screen, but the dynamics of, of the, the sort of ghostly, corrosive parental power uh, 
that fascism exerts over certain souls, it needs to be there. And it's in the story of the uh, fascist officer Podesta, Podesta and his son. You follow my orders, learn to obey, and you will be the perfect soldier. But my papa... You'll return home a hero. Any father would be proud of such a son. Why? Why did you want to bring Mussolini and fascism into the story at all? Because it's another paternal story. I mean, it's really the whole movie, including Jesus and God, is about fathers and sons. Pinocchio is sort of a surrogate, imperfect messiah, uh, resurrecting and dying for those that he loves. I think that all these wires are crossed in my head and, and they all make sense in the in the way they inform each other. If I'm going to make a, a, a movie about disobedience being a virtue, what better place to set it than in an, an invisible uh, sort of string world where everybody obeys except the puppet? There are many, many, many reasons. And uh, if you think about a note being hit at a piano, this element's death life, how brief it is, fascism, the imperfect fathers and imperfect sons, they all hit the pedal on the note to make it a little more resonant with what I think it should sound like. I heard that you always knew that you wanted Mussolini to be, like, the fascism and Mussolini to be part of Pinocchio. Like, you've known that whenever you, yeah, when you were a kid, you were like, someday I'm going to make a Pinocchio. Since my 20s. Yeah. Since my 20s. And as a kid, I knew I wanted disobedience. I knew I wanted disobedience, and I, I knew I wanted him to, to sort of be unruly. Uh, but I didn't, you know, until my 20s when I was thinking, well, it would be great to do that. And then part of that, funny enough, ended up in Pan's Labyrinth yeah. or Devil's Backbone. Yeah. And now it's, it's, it's like it, this movie belongs with those two in a very organic way. The, the, let's go back to something you were saying just then, that the, and this is, it, I don't know if I fully remember my experience watching Pinocchio mm-hmm. when I was a kid, mm-hmm. but I, I have some recollection of it. And what I don't think happened in that, which I think happens in yours, is what you said earlier, that Pinocchio comes out and you're sort of expecting this sweet, lovable puppet, but he's uh, he's disobeying right from the very, very beginning. Yes, you yeah. know, he his father tells him, Geppetto tells him not to go to church. And he says, I'm going to church no matter what. You know, like his father tells him to stay here. Mm-hmm. He's going to, you know, he's disobeying. The idea that the puppet is the person who is. Has a will. Yeah. Yes. Well, t- talk to me about that. Well, the idea, uh, we wanted Geppetto to be really, really full of edges. He's a drunk. He's, a, he's not that super smart. No. He's a father that is very concerned with the way everybody looks at him. Yeah. And how Pinocchio makes him look. Uh, he's, he lost a child. Uh, yeah, he's lost a child, but he has fantasized uh, that memory. He has sort of made him a perfect son. Yeah. Uh, he is full of things that are baggage uh, for him to, to, to be a good father or a real father. And I thought this was the more interesting version. Instead of Pinocchio learning to be a real boy, which is nonsense. Yeah. Every boy is a real boy. Every kid is a real kid. Parents have a hard time becoming a real parent. And that was the story I wanted to pursue. And at the same time, that has to be tied with a really imperfect Pinocchio. When he's born, uh, we wanted to make the, the scene almost feel like Frankenstein's uh, lab, really full of thunder and lighting and hammers and nails and branches being broken, really traumat- traumatology of the birth, you know? Sir, help! 
and then uh, arrived to the birth of uh, Pinocchio uh, in the hangover. And Geppetto is completely unprepared. Good morning, Papa! Uh, what, what is this? What kind of sorcery? You wanted me to live. You asked for me to live. Who, who are you? My name is Pinocchio. I'm your son. You're not my son. And this puppet doesn't control his body and he looks like a spider. Yeah. He looks really weird. And he is a bit much. Yeah. He's breaking everything. He's asking all the questions. He will not obey. He will he crushes the cricket. He bursts into church. It's really they are really far apart from coming together. That's the ideal dramatically, that's the ideal way to start a movie. Yeah. You know? But it also informs the theme. Is 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 a is a st- story about imperfect fathers and imperfect sons. Isn't it also a story about like mortality like i was watching this and i was thinking about because so in this in this story i don't think this is giving anything away in the story pinocchio dies a number of several times yeah Yeah, and he go and he comes back to life and there's a couple of scenes where i mean there's one where they say something like you know you are going to you are never going to die Mm -hmm. you will die many many times yeah but they would not be real death And, and you said and 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 she says um that it's the brevity of life that makes it special, the idea that life is short. The one thing that makes human life precious and meaningful, you see, is how brief it is. Oh. I didn't expect to have an existential crisis yeah. watching Pinocchio, yeah, yeah. but I kind of did. And I, I was curious, yeah. for, just for you, like, were you, when you, back to what you were talking about, you had a preoccupation when you were a kid with... Mm-hmm. Uh, authority and with conformity. Yeah. Did you have a preoccupation w- with death or with I, I think this movie solves a lot of issues for me. I was very worried about death, but uh, there's a reason the maternal figure in this film is death and is the, the real maternal figure with Pinocchio. Life is sort of uh, happy-go-lucky, giving life away, but without a plan. Death is very deliberately motherly and takes Pinocchio step by step into understanding what it is to be a real boy, what it is to be human, and she makes him, guides him all the way to him making the decision. I will go back and save my papa. You know, it's really moving for me because death, uh, as I aged and I lost my father and then I lost my mother, and and I, I really feel that it it makes you really humble in the sense that, oh, oh, it's coming, and it actually is beautiful that uh, I'm going to end. It's beautiful because if if, if something doesn't end, it never be gone, period. And and I was uh, saying is the metronome of life and death in the universe that marks our existence, and it never stops for anyone. That's beautiful. You are not that special, and therefore, while you're here, it's a very special time because this is all you're going to get. One ride, one time, that's it. So I find it very Mexican. It may be a little alien, but Mexico, we are full throttle because we know we're, where we're heading, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's still scary to me. No. You know what I mean? Because I remember, well, was, they're both scary because I grew up Catholic. I know you did too. Mm-hmm. And I remember being promised eternal life. And then I remember one day going like, 
Eternal Life also sounds terrifying. Yes. Oh, no, no. Listen, look at my first movie, Kronos. A Geppetto-like figure with a, a granddaughter uh, is facing eternity and chooses to destroy the machine that gives him eternity to die. And the final scene is very much like the final scene of Pinocchio, is this figure dying in bed with a ray of light, exactly like Pinocchio, and the, the granddaughter by his side finally at peace. Because the desirable thing in a vampire story is to end. Yeah. You know, I, I really been, I've been thinking about death since I was seven years old. And I have never stopped. And, I, and, and I, I think I finally understood one thing. It's actually really, really beautiful that we end. And it makes, uh, makes it great. Makes it, this life beautiful. But didn't you see a ghost? Yeah. And, I, I'm, not, and I'm not being silly Yeah, yeah but I, I think, look, I don't think, I don't know what is past. What's that story that you did? You saw a ghost when you were 12? I heard. You heard a ghost. I don't know what's the, uh, I've heard two times I've heard ghosts. Uh, what, whether they are illusions or not, when I was very young, about 12 years old, uh, I heard uh, the ghost of what I believe was my uncle breathing around me and moving around me. And, and it could have been a, a delusion, 100%. I'm not saying it was, but I heard it. And, and I heard it again uh, because I always ask for the haunted room in hotels. Really? And I'm always disappointed. You know, I you go to a hotel and you go, give me the haunted and room? I, well, I know what hotels are haunted in theory, and I've gone through most of them. And I never got anything except one time in New Zealand in the Waitomo Hotel off-season, no guests, and we arrived, we were scouting for The Hobbit, and we, uh, everybody got a room in a different wing, and I said, can you give me the haunted room? It was in a different wing, and they said, sure, here it is, just drop the, and the, the person guarding the hotel left, says, just put the keys on the box when you leave. And around midnight, I started hearing screams in the room, and I started hearing a man's voice sobbing in the room, and I put my earphones and I started to watch The Wire on my laptop because I was so scared. And I stayed, I watched the whole third season of The Wire. <laughs> <laughs> just to try it. I was just looking at the screen. Right. But I, what it is, I don't know. I, I don't have an explanation. Who has? Yeah. About what happens after? Does anything happen after? Yeah. You know, in the meantime, who cares? Let's just stay here and... Have a chat, have a coffee. Yeah, I know. Be good to each other. Oh, yeah. We'll that's be all okay. you can do. Yeah. Why were you thinking about death since you were seven? Because I was very scared. I, 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 when I was a kid, my father won the lottery when I was about six years old. He won a massive amount of money. He won $6 million in 1969. That is how, I mean, that's a lot of money That's now. a lot of money. To, to give you an example, on Sundays, you had the million-dollar movie on TV. Yeah. And he won six. Holy moly. He could have paid for the Planet of the Apes movie completely out of that <laughs> win. That's how big it wow. was. So our life was abandoned. He became this uh, uh, noble <laughs> a noble gentleman. He had got. He wasn't before. No, no, no. He was middle. He had a mm. car dealership, yeah. and he was doing okay. Yeah. But but he's he, elevated to a all new. of a sudden, yeah. bam! Right, and and he bought encyclopedias to have an office with books, and he bought them. I read them. I read the entire encyclopedia of art, the entire encyclopedia uh, Grolier, It was called, and one about health. It was an encyclopedia of health, and I learned every disease known to man at age seven. So every morning I would wake up and say, I have trichinosis. 
and I have multiple sclerosis. I have a leprosy. Yeah. <laughs> I, and Catholic religion in Mexico is full of a really compulsive dread and desire for death. It's a really, I mean, only Filipino uh, Catholic religion is that obsessed with corruption of the flesh. Yeah. When you see a, 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 a saint in Mexico a, a made of plaster, is forensically right. So every every Sunday, and then I became the uh, official spokesperson of the Virgin Mary. I was like a little more than an altar boy. And we would go and rehearse speeches about the Virgin Mary in the catacombs of a Gothic cathedral in Mexico, which is completely insane. Somebody decided to make a Gothic cathedral called El Expiatorio uh, in the middle of my hometown. And in the catacombs, there were the niches. And when the priest would leave, we would look into the niches and see the only thing I remember seeing was the feet of a corpse and the sole of one of the shoes had been corroded, so you could see all the tendons and the bones of the foot, and we ran away. But everything, salvation, death, childhood, Catholicism just became a bundle, a knot in my soul. So how, does that lead to the storytelling? Like you chose... Yeah. To, yeah? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the great advantage of Catholic religion is great stories. Great stories, and told with a lot of verb and gore yeah. and lurid details. Yeah. You know, there's violence, there's uh, uh, explosions of uh, cities, there's God is like a super villain in a Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah. If you go to the Old Testament, yeah, God is he's like, vengeful he's, in the Old oh, Testament. Yeah, he's like yeah. Thanos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, get, you get Avengers 6, you know? <laughs> oh, you know, the poor, poor job says, Excuse me, sir. Uh, why? Shut up! <laughs> you know nothing. Uh, yeah, yeah. You don't have the proportions to talk to me. Yeah. Or I made okay. one mistake, a small oh, yes, mistake. Yes. Well, forever. Thy shall be smiled. Yeah, forever. <laughs> For forever, all of eternity because yes, yes. you messed up one thing. And then yeah, my yeah. grandmother used to tell me stories that were absolutely dire of Saint Teresa or any childhood saint, saint uh, any childhood saint uh, in her obsession, she would say, and then this, uh, this little boy saw how the, the missionaries were tortured and boiled, and I was like, thank you, Grandma. <laughs> anyway, all that is in Pinocchio. <laughs> and every movie I've ever made, I mean, I tell you, the line between Kronos and Pinocchio is yeah. a straight line. More of my conversation with Guillermo del Toro coming up. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is out on Netflix now. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. However, the amount of chip on your shoulder you had, there's a thing that happens that is very physical and it goes away. It goes away. It's almost like a an imposition of the hands in a ritual it goes away like cast i cast you out spirit i love an answer that's an honest 
an honestly non-humble answer to what happens when you win an Academy Award. I'm Tom Power. You are listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the Oscar-winning filmmaker Guillermo del Toro. In just a minute, you're going to hear, I sort of have this sort of like um, dinner party, party piece story about Guillermo del Toro that I run by him to see if he remembers it the same way I do. Guillermo's new version of Pinocchio is out now on Netflix. Just before uh, we took a break, I was talking about what influences the stories he tells, what shapes his storytelling. And I wanted to talk more about that, to find out what drove Guillermo del Toro, one of the great storytellers of our time, to dedicate his life to telling stories at all. Here's more of my conversation with Guillermo del Toro. What I, what I was trying to figure out there was the why of the storytelling at all. So that's what it is. Like you're, oh, yeah. you, you learn through Catholicism and through your... your Net movies, obviously. Yeah. My mom was a big cinephile, or rather she liked going to movies, really. And, and there are three things that more than come in. One is uh, nannies telling you stories, uncensored. So there was a lot of ghosts and the devil, and there is a stone in my hometown that is covering a cave where the devil plays cards at night. And I was like, whoa, that's one. The second one is radio plays. I was born in 64. So when I was five or six, we would uh, get, uh, everybody would get in the kitchen after TV ended around eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night, TV ended, but radio continued. So we would listen to a radio play, uh, The Mad Monk, and it would tell stories of horror and we would, be listening and, and dreaming. And uh, the final component is uh, Mexican syncretism. You know, uh, Mexico was partially conquered because uh, the friars decided to blend pagan mysticism with uh, Catholic myth. The friars who... The fr- who, who came with the conquistadors. Okay, yeah. Yeah, they decided the only way we're going to get these uh, people to obey is if we make uh, our Catholic myth palatable with uh, fusing it with their mythology. Uh-huh. You know, so th- that's why the Virgin of Guadalupe is dark-skinned and is a, a, a mother that appears to, to uh, Juan Diego. I mean, these are things that are constructed so, that way. So you see there that there's like tremendous power in yeah. just tales, in just storytelling. Death and life on Pinocchio look like Mexican carvings uh, from a hundred percent, the 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 cherubs, not the cherubs, the seraphims, and the archangels in um, colonial paintings, they have uh, eyes on their wings. This is from Judeo-Christian mythology, where they they each of those eyes is gonna close when a soul dies, and that's in in Pinocchio and Mesopotamian, uh, which precedes Judeo-Christian mythology. The wings are also carved in a certain way. So all these things. The amount of things that influence a narrative is infinite. So those things from your childhood are in in this film. And and things from my adulthood. I mean, I think that there's a great fairy tale about uh, three brothers that set on the road to marry a princess. And whoever the brother impresses the princess the most, who's really bored, will win her hand. And in comes this strapping young lad, and he's going to tell her about his adventures. And the second lad is also very brave. And the third lad is a quiet, pale kid that is gathering trash on the road. Oh, a dead bird. I'm going to put it on my pocket. A little bit of cord. I'm going to put it in my pocket. A stone. And and when they come in, that the two strapping lads have very little to say. But this guy pulls out the dead bird, and the princess goes, what is that? Yeah, a dead bird. Why, why do you have it in your pocket? 
well, I thought it was really beautiful. Look at the feathers. And he has a story to tell, you know? And I think that's uh, the storyteller is the person that picks up useless little things along the road and has stories to tell about them. And that's you. That's 100% me, man. What do you get out of it? What do you like about it? What does it give you? I think it, it, what it gives everybody, if you can tell a story and you are, you are sort of organizing the universe in some way, that's why we did it. If, if, we were nomadic tribes, right? Going with each uh, of the seasons. Yeah. And when we learned to use fire and we settled on a cave, what's the first thing we decided to do? Tell stories. Yeah. So it, we organize the universe through stories. And through Pinocchio, we organize honesty. We organize uh, the obedience. Only, the, the, the disobedience being a virtue. The only truth you cannot uh, uh, destroy is telling the truth about who you are. That's the essential thing in life. Things like that. Life, the brevity of it. To me, all the, all the, all the things I can say about cosmically being there are all in the last line of the movie, what happens, happens, and then we're gone. And there's a humility to it, a surrendering to it. And I think that's, that's the thing. I think the older you get, the more you surrender in a great way. Uh, before I let you go, uh, last time I saw you, I don't know if you remember this, I saw you, I was walking down this, it was one of the great thrills of my life was... <laughs> Just what, what I, I just moved. I hadn't lived here very long, right? And I'm from like a, a little island in the middle of the North Atlantic, right? And I had talked to you before, and <laughs> then, then, see, that's a great story already. Yeah, I'm from, <laughs> from a, a little island in the North. Come on, <laughs> yeah, come on, dude. I am from a, a little beginning. island in the middle of the North that's Atlantic. How great is that? I moved beginning? to the big city, <laughs> and I talked made to, of stone. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. And I, and I talked to you, yeah. and on the show about the monsters exhibit, mm -hmm. and then uh, uh, I think maybe a year after that, you win Best Picture at the Oscars yeah, yeah, yeah. and there I am walking down I'm going to just start my storytelling now mm -hmm. there I am I tell the story a lot <laughs> in the city I'm walking down the street yes, in the city yes. with my headphones on walking mm -hmm. towards at the end of a long day walking towards the streetcar and at the building where the Toronto Film Festival happens yes. uh, there, there is a the light box they call it yeah. there is a, like a, a secret not a secret door but there's a door that opens up out of a wall oh yes it doesn't look like a door yes and all of a sudden that door pops open, <laughs> terrifying me. And who is standing there in front of me? A large figure comes out. <laughs> you. <laughs> Hard to figure it out. You yeah. are standing yeah, yeah, there yeah, yeah. and you look at me and I don't think either of us were expecting to see one another. Yes, yes. You had just won Best Picture. Yes, yes. I gave you a big hug and I just said like, hey man, congratulations. And you were like, thank you, thank you. And then that was kind of all we could do. And it was very meaningful to me. That, that yes. story was very meaningful to me. I'm glad, I'm glad about that. Because I think that's that's a, <laughs> that's life right there. Yeah, we just meet very briefly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> say thank you, thank you. Yeah. I moved on. <laughs> Move on. Yeah, and I haven't seen you since. Yeah. Answer me this: What? Give me one thing that changes when you win Best Picture. Uh, well, there is. Uh, however, the amount of chip on your shoulder you had, and it can be big. It can, you cannot quantify it. There's a thing that happens that is very physical, and it goes away. It goes away. It's almost like a, an imposition of the hands in a ritual. It goes away. Like, cast, I cast you out, spirit. Really? And it happens like this. You, your, your point of view is from the seats, and you're looking at the stage, like everybody at home. And all of a sudden, you get up, and you walk up the steps, 
to the stage and you turn around and you see the theater and everybody you have admired in your craft in some way or another is sitting there or standing, clapping, and something goes away. There's like a wave of, for someone like me, who has never quite belonged in one way of filmmaking or another because I'm worried about uh, pop narratives and fantasy and fable, and I'm not quite uh, a guy that uh, fits in the commercial. I'm, I'm not ha handing out blockbusters every week. Someone, they're telling you, one of us, <laughs> almost like a Todd Browning freaks kind of way, and you feel a belonging for the first time in your life. Whether it's real or not, it doesn't matter. It just heals a little bit of that hairline fracture in your heart, and it doesn't come back. It stays healed. It never and, came back. And you can move on to other things. Oh, my God, Guillermo. Yeah. I don't know what I was expecting with that answer, but that's beautiful. But it's real. That's the thing. And you move on to other things, which is the nature of humanity. We go, okay, what do I worry now? Yeah, and, and <laughs> Pinocchio, life continues to happen. Absolutely. And, and it's fine. Congratulations on the film, man. Thank you, man. It's really beautiful. This was a blast. Lovely to talk to you, as always. <laughs> Same here. I'll be honest with you. The answer I was expecting about how to, what it's like when you win an Academy Award is like, oh, it's okay. You know, really, it's just, you know, it's, it's nice, you know, it's, but you know, it's okay. I love hearing an answer of like, yeah, it kind of fills a bit of a hole in your heart that you may have been missing. I just really loved it. Guillermo del Toro, the multiple Academy Award winning film director, his latest film, Pinocchio, just took home the Oscar for Best Animated Film at this year's Academy Awards. You can watch it now on Netflix. Hey, I'm Molly Tuttle, and you're listening to Q with Tom Power. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. We're going to talk a little bit about language. Take a listen to this. We're at a very, very critical place, and I don't think a lot of people understand this, with indigenous languages in this country. Um, our language is, is estimated to have less than 100 speakers. You know, even in my family alone, we lost three speakers, you know, last year. And so with those people passing, we're not losing words. We're losing entire ways of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. There is... We come to know our world through our language. and We come mm. to describe our world through our language. I think that's important to keep in mind. We're not losing words. We're losing a way of looking at the world. That is the musician Jeremy Dutcher talking to me back in 2018. He had come into our studio to talk to me about this album that was about to come out. It was called Wallace-de-Wiglin-to-Waganawa. And on the album, Jeremy enters into this sort of musical discourse with these archival recordings of elders from his community in the Tobik First Nation in New Brunswick. He is singing in their language, duetting with them. I mean, just, just take a listen to it. You're hearing the archival recordings and Jeremy's own voice duetting together. It's as beautiful as it is important 
and as deserving as it is of every accolade it received. Because at the heart of Jeremy Dutcher's music, there is an urgency around the Wallistigoy language. And what brought Jeremy into the studio last summer with his mom, Lisa Pearlie Dutcher, was Lisa was starting an immersion school in New Brunswick for kids to learn Wallistigoy. And Jeremy was raising money for the school with a series of concerts uh, across the country. So I wanted to play this conversation for you again because, again, it's an interesting way of thinking about language. And Jeremy's doing this new thing now where this new ballet based on a Wallistuic legend. So I thought it would be a good time to revisit this conversation. Keep that in mind. When we lose a language, we don't just lose words. We lose a way of looking at the world. Here's some of my conversation with Jeremy Dutcher and his mom, Lisa Pearlie Dutcher. How are you? Well, hello, Tom. How's it going? Very well. Hi, Tom. Nice to have you here. Glad to be here. You and I met, I think, when Jeremy won the Polaris Prize. Yes, that's right. Your very proud mother out in the control room. <laughs> Try not to be, but, you know, yeah, it was a moment for sure. Well, he, he's, a, he's a hard fella to have as your son if you don't want to be proud, I suppose. <laughs> Jeremy, how are you doing? Very well. I mean, as you said, this is kind of a new venture for me, taking on education and thinking about language. And it's always kind of been a part of my work. But, yeah. but now I'm really, you know, we've been working over this last year to build curriculum and solidify that space and, and, and building partnerships with the city. So, I mean, it's I'm feeling good because I feel like uh, I'm directed in the work that I'm doing these days. Much like I was at the time when I was doing uh, right? Like uh, I felt so directed and so um, like I knew what I was doing. We've been here since time immemorial and we're still here and we're still singing these old songs. And that felt like, and, and, and to put myself into it felt good. But it also felt scary, right? Because you weren't sure how that's going to be received by your intended audience. You know, I always say like, and I never, I never measured it by you know, how, how many awards I get or, or how many people hear it or how many streams I get. It's always about who it's for. And it was for that community and they heard it. Was it scary to play it that first time? Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) Where was it? Where were you? I think the first time I came home to share it was, um, we were, we played this little venue called the Charlotte street art center. And we just, it was a DIY show. And we just, uh, we like rented the space and cleared out the, the, you know, brought in the chairs and, um, we just had people from the community and it was not, it was not particularly well attended, but I knew it needed to start in the East, right? Yeah. Because that's where it's from, yeah. you know? And I was living in Toronto at the time, but there was always like, no, when we share it first, it's gotta be in the East. Yeah. And, um, they received it. And I, and that just kind of like, you were, you were nervous. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's talk a little bit about this new school. So you guys are working together on, on the new school, uh, the Gagiman Wallastegui Language Immersion School. Mm. Lisa, tell me a little bit about how this came together. Well, Jeremy's been really interested in the language, and, and it got me thinking about the importance of my language, especially since I lost uh, three of my family members, and thinking, who's going to pass it on now? Like, it's up to me. Oh, yeah. So I really felt that urgency, and um, so I I quit my job, and I decided to go into a language-intensive program in Wollastogway, because I I was, I'm what they call a silent speaker. What does that mean? That means, like, um, because I had gone to day schools, Mm -hmm. uh, and we were punished for speaking, Mm -hmm. I had a lot of anxiety with speaking, Mm -hmm. and so I kind of, when it, it, it just kind of got stunted, my my language development was stunted, and mm-hmm. I so I didn't develop in my language. I was probably like a child of seven, 
And so I wanted to get over that hump. So I decided I was going to take this this uh, two-year program. And um, in the midst of that, I realized, and I had heard from various people talking about what it needed to happen in order for us to save our languages. We needed to have early immersion. But it didn't seem to be happening in our communities. And I was, I was very puzzled by that. I thought, well, we know what the solution is, but nobody's doing it. And so I'm going to use the skills that I have to get this going. I might not be the one to carry it through, but I'll be the one that, with a team, group of people, to get it started. That's so meaningful. I mean, and it's and also so different than, I mean, what, what you would have gone through when you were a kid when it comes to, oh. what you're able to give to these kids, you know what I mean? Well, that's it. Like, I mean, to me, like I see my granddaughters now and think, you know, at least they will have a chance to pass it onto yeah. their children. Like I wasn't really, like because I wasn't emotionally available to do that, I think that was, and, and now that I am, I can, I can, you know, address that for myself. So again, it's a big part of healing yeah. um, for myself as well to do this work. That's very, very exciting. Jeremy, you were saying, I think I think I cut you off there for a second. No, I, uh, no rush with this conversation because I think they, they, this conversation does and is going to take a long time for folks to really understand the gravity of what's going on here. And I'm so glad that, that the words of healing have been spoken into this space already because I think that is... <laughs> At the core, I think what's connecting, you know, my work and my mother's work, right? Because we're both taking maybe something painful or something that we don't have or something that we'd like to see and, and transmuting that into love and generative possibilities for, for people that aren't even us, you know, for, for everyone. And I think, you know, it's part of my mother's healing for sure. It's part of my healing as well, you know, to, to stretch towards fluency in our language. You know, mom, you offered what you could. You offered everything you could when we were coming up, you know? So yeah, there wasn't a sense of fluency in the home, but we did have words and we had little like the thank yous and the, I love yous and the, Hey, could you pass me that? And, um, Hey, you better behave and all that kind of stuff. That was still in our language at home, you know, even though, um, so, Stretching towards a, a, a fluidity and a fluency in my own language is is it's lifetime work. You know, it's going to yeah. be a long time, but yeah. but it's it's something that I want to see for for a lot of our young people. When you say we've lost um, the when, when you're in a situation where the language was almost extinct, yeah. when even around the house, you know, there was a couple of words you would hear every now and then, but even for you as an adult. Yeah. Fluency is is something that's going to be a lifetime work for you. To know that there are going to be children, kindergarten to grade four, early emerging, we know that from science, yeah. is, is, is how to make this thing happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, that must be so meaningful to you. Well, I, it'll be nice to have somebody to speak to. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. when I'm an old man and uh, we got all these kids that we raised up in this school and they'll have a, a chance to connect with their language. And really, that's what it's all about, right? Yeah. Connection. And I'm so happy that that land-based is uh, is part of the education. Can you talk about this? So, uh, so some of the school is outside? It's is pretty that- much, yeah. That, I mean, that's the kind of, and I'll let my mother maybe speak to this a little better, but um, definitely, I think, I mean, our elders have been saying this since I was a little kid, but our languages aren't learned in a classroom. They come from the land and we learn them from the land, right? right? Yeah. Our, our languages, they only live here. So what what happens? Like, talk to me a little bit about this, Lisa. Like, what what happens when you when you teach this language outdoors in in the forest in the woods? Well, 
um, I think, you know, when you think about what, what is language anyway, it's a way of communicating, but it's also a way of um, communicating our worldview, how yeah. we see the world, yeah. how we um, interact in the world. And I think, to me, it is about um, bringing forth that worldview. And traditionally, our people were very much outdoors. So what we want to try to do is create a, a space where the majority of the time, unless the weather is so poor that we can't be out, we will be outdoors. And the children will be learning how to say, um, you know, trees, the different types of trees they're going to know. They're going to explore, and it's going to be very child-driven. And I think what, what part is also really unique about this is an opportunity to learn directly from elders, right? Those language speakers are usually in the in the elder generation, right? And so for me personally, I know that those intergenerational mentorships and friendships have changed my life and put me on my path. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the more we can equip our young people um, not to only have peer relationships, but also relationships across generations, that's when the truly, I think generative earth changing work is going to come in because we've all got gifts and and in our wider society we don't always listen to our elders yeah you know and so i think bringing back these philosophies through language through land through education i think is is how we're going to change the conversation and one of the things you're doing is you're doing a series of concerts jeremy take a take a drink of water for god's sake have a drink of water i mean he's 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 been chatting away um um, you've been doing you're doing a series of concerts to raise money for the school well, I mean, it's under capitalism. It's kind of the it's kind of the magic sauce, no? Yeah. We got to have the money to do it. And I think for a long time, why we haven't seen a lot of movement is that governments are often dragging their feet around funding and often attaching their funding to say, well, you got to do it this way, or you got to do it that way. What's unique about this project is we're kind of taking a crowdfunding methodology and trying to trying to support it in that way because I think when it's community driven, it's going to be most successful. And 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 it kind of came home to me, you know, prior to the pandemic, we did a little tour in the East coast just like you know maybe five or six stops and um you know um my number my number one and number two fans my mom and dad came out to each show and and well we were just kind of starting around these conversations around the language school and oh wouldn't that be beautiful dreaming Mm -hmm. you know and all this stuff and anyway so i just in those shows i took a little moment to talk to the audience to try to engage our allies and our accomplices and say you know here's what's going on here's why i do what i do here's why i'm singing you know, here's why I sing in my language. Here's where, like, what the situation is, the fact that we, we're in a really precarious place right now, you know, and what can we do? So I said, you know, go talk to, my parents are going to be in the lobby. They're going to stand behind a table. You go talk to them. Hold on, Lisa, how did you feel about that being put out into the hall? <laughs> I don't mind. Like I said, it was for a good cause. And I, I was like, you know, I was honored that he was willing to do that and encourage people to have that co- those conversations with us. And I mean, come on, you know, like, how did I come out to be like this? I have a very charming mother, you know? <laughs> she just charmed him. And you know what? People came through. Yeah. And we made, we made a lot of money just from little donations, just individual mm. donations from people. And after that happened, I said, you know what? It's the time. It's the time for this work to happen and be and be lifted up because our allies they 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 see it in a new way, and especially after this last year, we see it in a new way. I'm not entirely sure how to ask this, um, but I'll ask it. When on the way in, when you, you, we were chatting a little bit in English when you guys came in, and then I think when you we, you guys were trying to figure out um, where to sit, you, you guys switched to your language. I guess what what happens in you when you speak your language to one another? I think it creates a strong connection. 
between, you know, um, people who come from that worldview. I mean, it, it, it's nice sometimes, especially when you want to say something and you don't want other people to know what you're saying. <laughs> It's kind of like a secret code, right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it comes in handy. But it also, like I said, it gives you that deep connection to mm-hmm. your your family, to your community, and to the like. Jeremy was saying to the land. I think that's really because there's no place like you're going to learn Wolastigway mm. other than in our territory. Like there's no other place in the world you can learn this language. Mm. So, I mean, we have a lot, like I was saying earlier, we have a lot of allies who are stepping up mm-hmm. and learning our language. Mm-hmm. Like, we have the mayor and some of her council and staff who are taking Wolostigway language. Really? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, they're really stepping up. And, and I've lived in Fredericton for over 35 years. Mm-hmm. And never in my wildest dreams did I think mm-hmm. that, you know, this would be happening. It's just totally amazing. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then to, to know that we're going to have start our, our first immersion school this fall is just another thing that just totally amazes me. Like I just mm-hmm. want to wake up sometimes and think, is this really happening? Yeah. You know, so. yeah, it is. It is. And it's happening because of you, because you made it happen. Yeah. And we got to celebrate that every single day because it is, it's an amazing story what you're doing. And uh, it's been an inspiration to me. I love hearing um, the two of them. I mean, it's so, it's so, it's so rare to hear that sort of like to be, it makes you want to call your mom. It makes you want to call your mom and just and, and thank her for everything. That is the Polaris Prize winning musician Jeremy Dutcher and his mother, Lisa Pearlie Dutcher. Since we talked to them in June of last year, there's a couple of developments. A Kakim in Wolestogoy Language Immersion School is up and running. There's also a new app that you can download to teach you the language. Just search for Kakim in Vocab Builder. I'll spell it for you. It's K E H K I M I M. Jeremy has a new venture going on. I'm looking forward to talking to him about that. It's with the Atlantic Ballet Theater. He's written the music for a new ballet based on a Wollastoic legend that's playing Moncton, Fredericton, St. John, Edmonston, and Miramichi in May. And that is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Tegan and Sarah will be here. There's a moment in the conversation where I felt compelled to ask, are you guys going to stay together? Because Tegan and Sarah have spent their entire lives together making music and now making a TV show based on their lives making music. What does that do to you as creative partners? And what does that do to you as sisters? They'll be here to talk about that. We'll see you then later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.